You only go around once in life, so grab all of the gusto you can get. You might have to be a little older to remember that beer commercial. But it was an old beer commercial. How about this slogan? There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. (laughs) Or a more simple one, Burger King, have it your way. See, the world's message to us and the message we default to is self-indulgent, pleasing self, living for self. And the Word confronts that on every level. I mean, the, in Christianity, without, there's no Christianity without self-denial. The Gospel message is joyful self-sacrifice. See, the Gospel pulls us out of ourselves. It focuses us out of ourselves. It transforms the way we think and therefore the way we act. See, our priorities in Christ, we come to Christ, we are transformed, we are born again by the work of the Spirit, applying the Word to us. We are given a new heart which has new affections and new goals, new purposes. And so the priorities become God's glory and others' good. And our text today is an example of that. It's of God bringing His Word to bear and the disciples responding with joyful self-sacrifice. The church is pre-warned by God's grace of a need. And they mobilize to meet that need. They give to meet that need. So coming up, we've, we've seen coming up to this text that we've, uh, we've focused on Paul coming into, Saul coming into focus, and we see Saul in the end of chapter 7, in chapter 8, and beginning there, Stephen is martyred, Saul is approving of his martyrdom, and Saul leads a persecution seeking to stamp out the church. Um, there's The gospel is spreading because of this persecution, uh, and Jesus said it would, you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We see Saul going on, getting letters and going to Damascus and coming to faith. Jesus arresting him on the road to Damascus and, uh, and bringing him to faith and him preaching and confounding the Jews. Death threats against him, so he goes to Tarsus, right? Then we see a shift in focus to Peter and his outreach to Cornelius and God convincing him that the Jew and Gentiles, one new body, Gentile inclusion, that the Jews are included in the people of God and have the same salvation in the same Messiah. So we see it coming, we see an introduction to Saul and then we shift to Peter and now we're we're going to, we're going back and forth a little bit. Eventually then we'll pick up with with Saul again in the first missionary journey, Paul, and move on with with a lot of Acts being, being Paul's life. But we saw Peter report about God's grace to Cornelius. We saw the church born in Antioch. Uh, in verses 19 and, and flourishing 19 to 26. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it. And then today we'll see that, that the prophets come on the scene. Agabus gives a message. The people hear it and respond and give to meet the need. In other words, what we see exampled here is that the main point, we should be quick to respond to God's worth with faith and self-sacrifice. For Jesus' sake, like them and like we've seen so far in the book of Acts, 
This faith, this gospel faith is, is bringing them outside themselves, causing them to, to love God and worship Him and love one another and care for one another and be on mission for Christ. But we see some prophets come on the scene. And uh, this is the first mention of a New Testament prophet. So we'll deal a little bit with that as we look at this text. But the main point, again, is we should be quick to respond to God's word with faith and self-sacrifice for Jesus' sake. But first, the prophet's prediction. Look at this back in verse 27. Now, in these days, what days? The church of Antioch has been born. It's being grown and strengthened. It's, it's being planted and organized and becoming a church. And so not, the prophets from, come down from Jerusalem. And the, the prophets in that day tend to be somewhat itinerant and moved from church to church. There were prophets in that day that we'll talk about. But this is the first mention. All the other mentions previous to this have referred us back to the Old Testament prophets. And now we have a reference to a New Testament prophet, a group of them. And then one is singled out. Agabus is his name. And it says, in these days, verse 27, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. So the prophets come down and a message is delivered that a famine is coming. I want to take this opportunity to just back up just a minute and talk a little bit about prophets. What is a prophet? It can be a, a sort of a term that has mystery around it. But what is a prophet? What did a prophet do? What was the prophet's job in the Old Testament? You see a large portion of the Old Testament are prophetic books, books by prophets and about prophets. And there, there are major prophets and minor prophets. And you know the difference between the two? The, yeah, that's all it is. The minor prophets' works are shorter. It doesn't mean they're less important. And the major prophets' works are longer. But their prophetic ministry was to call people to repentance, to call them back to faithfulness in God's covenant, to proclaim God's, God's judgment against sin. And to call them to repentance. And in the midst of that, there was some, some future looking or forth, foretelling. But most of their job was, was as God's sort of prosecuting attorney, attorneys to come to the people and call them back to faithfulness to God. And you know, very little of that was heeded in the Old Testament. So the people of God in the north go into captivity, people in the south go into captivity and, and move on from there. But in the, in the Old Testament, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God. What, what would they say often? Thus says Jeremiah. Mm -mm. Thus says the Lord. They were receiving direct revelation from God and speaking it to the people. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is the Lord's word. They were delivering the Lord's word to the people and calling them to faithfulness. Most of their, their prophetic ministry was in this kind of forthtelling, preaching the word, a revealed truth, calling the people to joyful obedience and repentance. And then again, there was mixed into that foretelling where it would, would speak of God's grace in the future and restoration and the coming Messiah and, and things like that. So a prophet, was just, he was one who spoke the word in both foretelling or proclaiming the word already revealed uh, and then foretelling or predict. There was some future prediction elements to it, but it was all the revelation of God. 
It was all coming from God through the prophet to the people. And the faithful prophets, the true prophets, were the ones who, who, that God had spoken to and he, they spoke His Word. What they predicted came to pass in its time. And the truth, what they preached was true doctrine. Truth in accord with God's Word. And of course, you know there were false prophets. The, uh, the true prophets called people um, to faithfulness to God and, and the false prophets, well, they made a lot of promises and said peace, peace when there was no peace and didn't much like the true prophets just like everybody else. But it was all God's revelation, thus says the Lord. Same thing in the New Testament. Men who faithfully proclaim truth and their predictions come true. You see the distinction in the New Testament between true prophets and false prophets. And Peter draws sort of a distinction between uh, an equation between false prophets and false teachers. Not blending and confusing the two, but the relationship there that we could talk more about. But there are false prophets in the New Testament and true prophets. How do you know a true prophet? A true prophet would have accurately put forth the word. A true prophet, if he made a prediction, it would come true. It's not 95% batting average, which would be great in baseball. You'd make a lot of money. But if you missed, you were a false prophet. True prophets call people outside themselves to live for God's glory, for others' good. And false prophets make life about you. Here and now, comfort, prosperity, no judgment. False prophets don't talk about sin and repentance and things like that. False teachers don't either. Have your best life now. Your breakthrough is just around the corner. Boy, this next year is going to be good for you if you send me some money. That's not me talking. Don't send me any money. Peace, peace when there is no pre peace. Well, we see prophets in the Old Testament. Here we see prophets showing up in the New Testament. And maybe the question that comes up is, is where are our prophets? Was prophet a permanent office in the New Testament? And praise God, the Word answers that for us. The short answer is no. There are only two permanent offices in the New Testament. Elder and deacon. Elder, pastor, overseer, deacon. That's it. We're not told how to recognize a prophet, what a prophet is. Any of the, we're not given any of that. Because the prophets are part of the foundation. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Jew and Gentile together. Now watch this. The household of God in verse 20 is built on the foundations of, foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So there were prophets in the, in the early church. They were recognized. There was a group of them. They would travel around and they would speak. And we see that happening here in the book of Acts. But what we need to recognize is that was a transitional time. And just like the apostles were there for a season and then they passed off the scene not to be replaced. Because they're part of the foundation. Now Apostle Big A, those who walked around with Jesus and were called by Jesus and wrote the Word and, and, and all of those things, just like the apostles were there for a season and then once they died they were not replaced, the prophets 
New Testament prophets, prophets like Agabus were part of the foundation building, part of the time when God was showing these extraordinary signs and doing extraordinary things and, 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 and putting together His church through the preaching of the gospel, setting its foundation. So verse 20 in Ephesians, and people try to say that they're different. Anyway, it clearly says that apostles and prophets were part of the foundation with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now once you build a house, if you know how to build a house, when you lay the foundation, do you keep building the foundation on top of the foundation? Once you lay the foundation, it's laid. And then you build on that foundation. What you actually live in. The foundation supports it. It's the foundation or the fundamental work that was done. But the, 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 these prophets, the, the, the prophet, New Testament prophet, just like the apostles, was part of the foundation. Why are they not needed anymore? Obviously, they're not needed anymore or they would be here. Prophets received direct revelation from God and spoke that to the people. We don't need any more direct revelation from God. And nobody's getting direct revelation from God anymore. Although a lot of people claim to be. I saw, I saw a man one time. I won't tell you who he is. I pick on people enough. But I saw a guy supposedly preaching. And he stopped in midstream and said, What's that, Lord? Oh, okay, I'll tell him. I don't know what he was hearing, but it wasn't direct revelation from God. And most, a lot of them are just hucksters anyway, trying to get your money. But anyway, there's no more direct revelation from God, so there's no more need for the prophets. They were part of the foundation. So in the strict use of the term, there are no prophets today. That's why we don't have a way to recognize them and, and appoint them and ordain them and submit to them because they were part of the foundation of the church. Nobody is receiving direct revelation from God today. We have a sufficient revelation and a finished revelation right here in God's Bible, God's canon, God's Word. Not that God doesn't lead us and guide us and impress us in the ministry of His Spirit and His life in our lives. But nobody's receiving direct revelation from God today because we have what Peter called, and I encourage you to go read Second Peter chapter 1, what Peter called the prophetic word made more sure. The light to us, what we should pay attention to. Peter says having the prophetic word, we're in, better, in a much better situation than having actually been there and saw the miracles. We don't believe that. We think it'd be much better if we were there and but Peter says, you are better shaped having the prophetic word, which is the Bible. So New Testament prophets were real. They were there. They were part of the foundation. Their ministry coincided with the apostles. And they were part of the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 clearly says that. I want to look at one more text that will come into play as we think about these things. We think about prophecy and prophets. And you might... You know, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but not much. So hang with me. I'll do it quick and we can talk more about it if we need to. But Paul talked about prophecy. Paul talked about these kind of things and them passing away. And I want to I give you at least my, what, how I understand this text 
And uh, this doesn't mean God's not still powerfully active. He is. But certain things were part of the beginning and certain things continue on to the end of the church. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul's point is pointing them to love and a life of love. And without love, we are nothing. And he's showing them what continues and what ends, what is temporary. And so I'm just going to pick it up in verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. Without love, we're nothing. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Pursue, pursue love. The, the law was summarized in love. Love of God, love of neighbor. Um, God's love sets us free. But love never ends. Now watch this. Thinking about prophecy. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Probably of their own accord, according to the, the construction there in the Greek. As for knowledge, it will pass away. That, now, it's not talking about general knowledge, right? This is revelational knowledge. This is this direct revelation from God. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. In the day that he's writing and speaking to the Corinthian church who made the big deal about the showy gifts, he's, he's in the day of transition. Canon not complete yet. Paul will write a lot of that. So in that day he said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So prophecy's passing away, knowledge passing away, knowing in part, prophesying in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I came a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide. These continue. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So some things are going to pass away. There's a time when they're going to pass away. And some things are going to continue. Faith, hope, and love continue. But the partial will be done away. And what he identifies as the partial here are prophecies, tongues, and revelational knowledge, direct revelation. He says those things are going to pass away when the perfect comes. And the, the, the glaring question is what does it mean when the perfect comes? And those of a more continuational this mindset would say that that's when Christ returns. I don't think that's what this is saying. I'll give you a few reasons why. Prophecies pass away. We don't have prophets. They're part of the foundation. They had partial knowledge. They didn't have a completed Bible in that day. So those things were operative and Paul was regulating them because they were being abused in the church. That's what you find in chapter 14. Um, but he says here, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The incomplete will be done away when the complete comes. Paul this word for the perfect or the mature or the complete. Paul never uses that word to refer to the second coming. In any of his writings. Ever. Teleos is used for completeness. For maturity in his writings. But it is never used as a reference for the second coming. And Paul has done it. He did it in a lot of ways in his writings. He's perfectly able to say clearly Christ's second coming when he wants to. 
If he was going to talk about the second coming, he wouldn't leave us in doubt about it. The parousia, you know, in other ways. But he doesn't say that, and he never uses this word teleos to refer to the second coming. But he does use it to speak of completeness. Now watch this. When we're reading this passage, we're talking about some things that are incomplete. Partial knowledge. Partial prophecies. The partial is replaced by the complete. When the complete comes, the partial is done away. And look at the illustrations he uses. He he uses the contrast between childhood and maturity. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. He's equating these prophecies and tongues and special knowledge to childhood. He said, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then he uses the analogy of a mirror. In those days, a mirror was not what we have. Glass with backing that's a perfect reflection. A mirror was metal, shiny metal, right? And it didn't give a full and accurate reflection. There were no perfect mirrors in that day. So you, you looked into them and you saw what he says, you saw it dimly. You saw a representation of what you looked like, but not a complete representation. The face you saw in the mirror was not your true face. I mean, there were, the, the, <clears throat> there were sayings around that time that the, if you see your friend's face in a mirror, it's not the face you see when you see your friend. Because it was, it was not a perfect reflection. I think Nero used um, precious gems or stones or jade or something polished for, for his mirror. Anyway, he was a little vain. Um, but that's what he's talking about. Now we see in a mirror dimly. He's using the mirror as a figure, to, figure. But then we'll see as we are. Face to face. Now I know in part. See how he's equating it? But then I'll know fully. Even as I've been fully known. And faith, hope, and love abide. So my point is. I believe Paul is teaching in this text. And using figures like maturity. Using figures like an accurate reflection. To show that there was a day coming. When God's revelation will be perfect. And when it is perfected. When it comes. The partial stuff will be done away with. And so that would be why. We don't have prophets today. And that's why I say. Nobody is receiving direct revelation today. Because the Word of God is complete. The, the perfect has come. Big discussion. People like to point to the face-to-face thing. Do you know that Jacob had a face-to-face relationship with God? It says that in the Word. Christ hadn't returned yet. Moses had a face-to-face relationship with God. Gideon had a face-to-face relationship with God. And that's pre-second coming. You know, clear revelation of who God is and who He is. We have, proverbially speaking, a face-to-face relationship with God because we now have the full revelation of God. We know as we are known. That's not talking about having omniscience. We'll never have that. We'll never even know ourselves the way God knows us. But this is the, the imperfect and the, and the partial being replaced by the complete, by the mature And then thus by some translations use the word perfect. I think that obscures it a little bit. But Paul normally uses that word to mean mature. Mature and complete. So anyway, that's just my shot at what 1 Corinthians and Paul is talking about. 
you can talk more about that if, if you want to. But we have the full revelation. We don't need any more direct revelation. Now listen, this does not also mean that nobody, nobody can read the Word and see what the Word says and see how God's orchestrated things in the past and see where the culture is going today and make accurate predictions. Sure, we speak prophetically, but we're not prophets and it's not direct revelation. We're seeking to apply the Word to our circumstances. So yeah, I'm speaking prophetically in one sense now. You, when you teach your, the word to your kids, are in some sense speaking prophetically. You're sharing God's word with them. But there's no more direct revelation coming to people. There's no fresh word for today. You'll hear people say things like that. He who adds to this, he who takes away from this, that warning at the end of the book, God's word is complete. Everything we need for life and godliness, the perfect, the complete, has come. But what we see in Acts chapter 11, this too is during that time of transition. There were prophets on the scene. There were, there were sons and their daughters shall prophesy. Oh, men dream dreams. Those things are happening. They're in the days of the partial and God is guiding and leading and directing His church through His faithful representatives who in that day, some did get direct revelation from God and, and spoke it to the people in various forms. But that passed, that stopped, that was done away when his revelation was complete. I fight for that because I think it's important to ground you in his word and get you looking here and not anywhere else. But they recognized that prophets were still on the scene. They were giving direct revelation. They spoke the very words of God. And something here is in our text. I'm back to our text now. It says it's foretold by the Spirit. Now, they probably knew who Agabus was. They certainly knew who these prophets were. There was probably a reputation for being a true prophet in the church in that day and for accuracy. So there was a respect there. And so when these men come to this, if you want to call it a new church plant in Antioch, and part of the time that they're there, this happens that Agabus stands up in their meeting probably. And foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine in all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So you have God revealing to his prophet who had come to Antioch uh, named Agabus that there was a great famine coming. Probably late 30s AD when this prediction is made. This famine doesn't occur, occur till, till best we can tell, somewhere around 45 to 47 A.D. So they had a full maybe six years, seven years warning before this would come. But they had time before it would come. But the prophet stood up in the power of the Spirit, like the Old Testament prophets, sort of thus saith the Lord. He said, a famine is coming. Notice, at least in our text, he doesn't make any application of that. He doesn't command them to do anything about that. He just tells them a famine is coming. There's coming a famine. People are going to need food. Uh, reminds me of Joseph and how God used him to deliver the people. Great story. But the prediction that Agabus brings is that, in the, that, that there's a famine coming. It says here, over all the world. And really, probably talking about the Roman Empire. The Roman world. And there were various famines during that time. One of them especially affected Judea. 
right? So maybe he gives more detail because that's where they target their relief. But it says that Agabus stood up and said that by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. Notice that. Not just a famine, but a great famine. And that, uh, that this actually took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius is an interest. If you want to go read history about Claudius, he's kind of interesting. He was a reluctant emperor. Um, he was one that was made fun of and mocked earlier in his, in his childhood. And during his, he was murdered at the end of his, his emperorship. Um, but during the time that he reigned, which was about 13 years, there were five famines in the empire. And one of them especially struck Judea. So this is the famine that took place between 45 and 47. You've got Josephus and other accounts that give testimony to that fact. The prophet has spoken the truth to God's people to forewarn them of an impending um, disaster. And they believed. It pictures Jesus as our great, he's our prophet. He's the fulfillment of all the prophetic offices. Prophet, priest, king. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1. And Jesus as our prophet tells us the truth. The truth about the wrath to come. And has come to live for us, to die for our sins, to be raised, to reign, and to come back again someday. And the good news of the gospel is that he died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and raised the third day. He is the prophet to whom we look. The one who tells us the truth about ourselves and about our need of salvation, about how he has met that salvation. He has supplied for our famine, which was a famine of righteousness. We were unrighteous and needing salvation. And Jesus has come to save us. Well, the prophet proclaims this coming famine and then the disciples. The reason I titled it Prophets and Priorities. Watch this. Uh, the disciples' priorities. Verse 29. So the disciples, now they are responding to the news. They are hearing that this famine is coming. So what they do is they decide to store up as much as they can for themselves and their families. So that number one is taken care of. For everything else, they'll be MasterCard. No. Look what they do. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Famine relief is gathered and is sent. This is amazing. Think about this. Look at me. No famine has happened yet. There's no proof that a famine's going to happen other than the prophet's word. There's no prediction in the newspaper. There are no signs in the sky. There's no proof they can look to other than the word that this famine is coming and they believed it. They believed the word given by Agabus by the Spirit. This will happen. Well, we look out into the fields right now and everything looks fine, Agabus. They believed it. They just believe it. They acted upon it. Joyful obedience. 
Oh yeah, Agabus, a famine's coming. Prove it. Then I'll believe you. They were walking by faith and not by sight, right? They didn't demand proof. They didn't need proof. They trusted the word delivered by Agabus and it shaped their life. Now listen, if you're a Christian, you've done the same thing. And it's the Spirit of God that convinces you that it's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God that convinces you that the Gospel is true. Nobody has ever proved to you about the virgin birth. How could they? Other than, I mean, Jesus rising from the dead, proving it's all true. Testimony of history, we can use those kind of things. We can, we can show that the New Testament or that the Bible is a reliable historical account. But the only person that can convince you it's the Word of God is the Spirit of God. You can't argue people into the kingdom of God. I'm not saying don't have a good apologetic. I'm just saying don't lean on it. Keep the gospel the main thing. They believed it. I mean, think about yourself. You believe Christ was raised. He, he died for your sins. Nobody's proved that to you. You believe He was raised from the grave. You believe He's coming again. Why do you believe that? Because the Word says it. You may have not thought about that before. The Spirit brought to bear His Word on you and created faith in your heart so that you turned and trusted Jesus. And certainly the apostles were eyewitnesses and they saw the resurrection and they were witnesses to the resurrection. But you'll, as we go through Acts, you'll see them go to cities that were not in Jerusalem and God will be at work through their message and spirit to create new life and faith in these people through their testimony. Faith is a gift. I'm not saying it doesn't have a foundation. In fact, it does. True faith is not just a leap into the dark. But these people believed the word. They didn't scream for proof. They didn't hesitate in doubt. Because they knew this was true. God had inspired his prophet to tell them. And so they, it says this, they talked about this. They probably met about this. And they determined what to do about this. That they were going to send relief. They were going to respond to the disaster with help. And remember what we said. That the church in Antioch by this time is a rather sizable church. A lot of people have been converted. They're organizing and meeting. Large numbers are meeting. And, and the gospel is being preached. And they're being taught. And, and God is building his church. And it was organized. And now they're, they're meeting about what, how to respond to this famine. And watch this, it says, so they determined, verse 29, everyone according to his ability. That reminds me of 2 Corinthians, grace giving. Proportional giving is still a thing in the New Testament. They didn't wait for sky riding or a feeling or how much should I give. They looked to see what God had entrusted to them. And in accord with what God had entrusted to them, they gave to the need. It says they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers, the brethren, the Christians living in Judea. Because times are going to get hard. 
And they are working way ahead of time to be ready for this. Now, I don't think Agabus said, this is the year this is going to happen. And we certainly not recorded that, but he told them that famine was coming and they got to work preparing their response. They trusted the word and acted on it. And they determined according, each one, every one of them, according to their ability to send that relief to the brothers. Each gave what they were able. They determined to sacrifice for their brethren in need. See what I said up front. The gospel drives us outside ourselves. The gospel makes us into givers. In imitation of our Savior, who is the ultimate giver, who gave Himself for us. The gospel transforms us into givers, just like we see in these people here. If that hasn't happened, and and listen, when I say giver, we all run straight to cash, don't we? That's part of it. Your time, though, your talents, your resources, your service in the kingdom of God to see the gospel go forth. And some of that, yes, is, is us giving back to God a portion of what he's entrusted to us financially. But man, they are they they have been changed by Jesus. They love Jesus. They love his people. They love their brothers and sisters. They hear of a hardship that's coming and they mobilize to help with that because they are considering others more important than themselves. That's what Paul's going to teach in the Philippian letter. In fact, I want to read some of that to you. Because we are in an environment and we are in a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged, individualistic country. Take care of number one. That's why I read those quotes in the front. You take care of number one and then if there's anything left over, praise God, that's not how Jesus acted. But look at this. Philippians 2. And I encourage you to go back and meditate on this section. But Philippians 2, 1 to 4. If there is, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says to the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. What mind is that, Paul? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But, contrast, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Within the context of God's church and among God's people, we're to be like Jesus with one another and love one another the way He loved us, He says. How did He love us? He gave Himself. He sacrificed Himself. He denied Himself. He took up His cross. He died for us. And he says the new aspect of that command is you're to love one another the way I have loved you. And Jesus put us first. Of course, God's glory is preeminent, but outside of himself when he came to save us. Look at this. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I confess that struggle. I'll confess your struggle if you want me to. This is not natural. But I ask you a question. Has Jesus so radically impacted your heart with his gospel that you count other people more significant in his church than yourself? Their needs are more important than yours. You know he'll meet your needs and he gives you, he entrusts things to you not for you to be a hoarder but for them to pass through. 
Not everything. God never required all of you, but right? According to our ability and our time, talent, and certainly our, you know, the resources he's entrusted. That's what they're giving. Consider others better, more significant than yourselves. Now watch this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Certainly you're to take care of your family and, and do all that. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Think like Jesus. Self-sacrifice. And that's where Paul goes from here. The mind is one of humility. It's one of counting others more significant than yourself. Taking care not only of your own interests, but the interest of others. And then he identifies the mind again in verse 5 in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, to be selfishly held on to the throne, the glory. But he emptied himself, not of his deity. People will teach that, of his, his privileged position. By taking the form, it tells us how he, it wasn't an empty, a, a, a losing, but it was a taking on humanity, becoming the God-man, being born. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Most cruel, painful death. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name above every other. To the glory of God the Father. So we are, as Christ's people, to have Christ's mindset, which is others more, others better, not only taking care of our own interests, but the interest of others. That's the way Jesus thought, and that's the way Jesus acted. And Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't believe that, do we? I know our kids don't believe that. Some of them do. Our kids will blow you away. Some of them will surprise you. And they're giving hearts. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what we see practiced here in verse 29 and 30. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brethren. And it hasn't happened yet. They're giving and organizing and it would be delivered by the hands of faithful men. It says in verse 30. They did so and they sent it to the elders. By the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And even there you can see the leadership in Jerusalem. Being transitioning to the elders. In the church. So what do we do with this? Just a few quick points of application. But when I read this and thought about this. And thought about how far to go. I thought this is a really good place to think. To make a few points. To help clarify some things. And then for us to challenge ourselves on. How, how others minded are we? How much of God's glory takes up our mind? How much of others' good takes up our mind? How much are we putting ourselves first? Would we have been this way joyfully? Believed God's word and acted. So the first thing I'm talking about uh, application is we we have the full reserva reservation. I have had a trouble a trouble a trouble talking. I'm doing it now. I've had trouble talking all morning. I apologize for that. I don't know. What, I didn't bump my head. I don't think, but. Maybe Cindy whacked me in my sleep. We have the full revelation 
of God about the incarnate word Jesus in the Bible. We don't need any more revelation from God. This is sufficient and complete for everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says. It's God-breathed. Believe it. Believe it. There's nothing more you need as far as revelation from God than what you have here. Now, sometimes we think we do. But we can make every decision we need to make based on the principles we find here. This is the full revelation of God. Believe it. Secondly, prioritize it. Know it. Feed on it daily. Obey it with joy. And we have so many resources. We have an embarrassment of resources that we have right at our fingertips. Yes, through technology. We can find commentary upon commentary and you got to be careful, right? But you, you can find every translation. You, you have so many ways to, to take so much. We have so much that we just take it for granted. Don't make me work, preacher. Just let me, just pump it in my head on Sunday and that'll be good enough for me. You will suffer needlessly if that's your attitude. Because the word of God is given for our sanctification. Jesus said, sanctify them by the, in the truth. Your word is truth. That the word is our food. Remember the reading we did? That it is perfect. That it is more valuable than gold. Much fine gold. This is more important. Secondly, Hold things loosely and see their primary purpose as God's glory. God had entrusted to this people some stuff. And now they hear of a need and they're holding it loosely so they were able to give to that need. I mean, you read about those in Macedonia who gave according to their ability and above because of God's grace. And you see it in Philippians that God, he promised, there's the promise that God will meet all of our needs. But Paul says, go read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and places like that. He's not asking, God doesn't ask us to impoverish ourselves. So, you know, he just, you know, who, he who has much and he who has little, give faithfully. Hold things loosely. See their primary purpose as God's glory. And according to your ability, give. Meet the needs of God's church. Yes, that's why God has set up it for giving to be done in the church. So that the gospel can go forth to the ends of the earth. And that happens through healthy churches that are, that are organized, as we saw last time in the Word in Acts 11, and who have faithful leadership and who are on mission for God, who will take what you give, and it, and it is fueling the mission. So certainly we're to give to God's church. But also others. These people heard of the need coming. They met about it. And they determined each one of them to participate. To send relief to the brethren in need. So word-centeredness leading to a life of others. God-centeredness and others-centeredness. Self-sacrifice. And then listen. All this is flowing out of the grace that is yours in Jesus. God's not going to love you more if you give more. Right? Their hearts, the reason they responded this way is because God had brought to them the gospel and they were trusting in Jesus. We saw that happen as we reviewed that text and how God planted the church there in Antioch and organized it. And I just encourage you to go back and listen to that. 
But this is all flowing out of the grace. Grace has made them joyful givers. All flowing out of the grace that was theirs in Jesus. Their hope was fully in God's grace. They weren't thinking that they were made more righteous by giving. But they were living in imitation of their Savior who has sacrificed Himself and calls us to sacrifice ourselves for Him. See, that's, I mean, His sacrifice, the gospel, in case you hadn't heard it this morning, Jesus Christ, why did He come? He came to succeed where Adam failed and where Israel failed and where we failed. He came to live in perfect conformity to God's law. He said it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. He, as the God-man, God, Lord at His birth, Luke says, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on a true human nature, became like us in every way, lived under His own law, and kept it. Yes, empowered by the Spirit. Kept it in thought, word, and deed. He always thought the right, right thing. He never thought the wrong thing. He always spoke the right thing and never spoke the wrong thing. And He always did the right thing and never did the wrong thing. He kept God's law because He loved the Father. And it was his food to do his will. He fulfilled all righteousness. He deserved nothing but blessing. But a people had been given to him before the foundation of the world. And he was coming to save them. So he took their sin upon himself. And he died to pay the penalty for that sin. Not just in physical death. As horrible as that was on the cross. But he took our condemnation due our sin upon himself. And he drank that cup dry. He finished it. He took our eternal hell and he paid it in full. That's what he said before he died. He said, it is finished. And that to tell us die, paid in full. Done. He was in the grave. And on the third day he rose again. For our justification. He appeared to more than 500 people at once. And met with the, the apostles. And the disciples for 40 days. Before he ascended into heaven. And had on the throne of God. Reigning now and coming again someday. But Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. In order to give salvation to his people. And that salvation is a free gift. You can't fix sin. With sin. That's what we do when we try to clean it up. He calls upon us to turn from self and sin in the world. To turn to Him and to receive Him as our salvation. To trust in Him. To call out to Him for salvation. Have you called out to Jesus for salvation? Are you trusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation? It's a free gift. I'm not good enough. Praise God. That you see that. Join the club. Christ came to save sinners. Paul says among whom he was chief. Turn and trust in Jesus. And then the life that he calls you to live. He's empowered you to live by his spirit. He's given you his word. So that you can grow in grace. And joyfully loving him and serving him. But that's all the work of grace. It's not making yourself more acceptable to him. Your justification takes place right when you come to faith. Then you're being grown in grace and sanctified. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul said. The tax collector. God be merciful to me a sinner. Jesus said he went home justified. All who call out to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. All who turn and call out to him. Not just for fire insurance but for salvation. Are saved. 
He, the word, has come to us and changed our lives. And he has given us his word, which changes our lives. And we see the word active in the church in Antioch so that they hear the coming disaster and they deny themselves and respond in faith by giving to the need. And that is true life. Not a self-centered life, but a God-centered life. And an other's better than me life so that I live for his glory and serve my brothers and sisters and seek to take the gospel to those who don't know him. Let me rewrite those slogans that I started with up first. You only go around once, so store as much treasure in heaven as you can. There are some things that money can't buy, but for everything, there is the Master's Word. And the last one, have it Jesus' way. The true King who sacrificed Himself to save our souls, change our lives, and take us all the way home to heaven. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust You. Help us to trust Your Word. Help us to live with joy in your grace, not seeking to save ourselves or make ourselves acceptable, but looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May all of our hope, Lord Jesus, be in you. Trusting in you and knowing that you have paid the penalty for all of our sins. That you have defeated death by going through that grave and being raised the third day. That you both cleanse us from our, all of our sins and clothe us in your righteousness when we come to faith in you. That you've given us your full word and the power of your spirit for the new joyful life you call us to live. Use us for your glory. Help us to love and honor you. Help us to love and serve one another. And help us to be light and salt to those who don't know you. Lord, those who are here this morning that may be struggling with the faith, I pray that you would apply your gospel to their hearts so that they believe it and turn and trust in Christ. Those of us who know you, Lord, grow us in grace. And maybe we've sort of grown cold. Refresh us in a passionate life lived for you in response to your grace. Put in us a love for your word that values it above all treasure. And may you be our treasure, our delight, our joy, and our purpose. Lord, grow us up in grace. Use us for your glory. Help us to deny ourselves and thus to have true life and true joy in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.